Hey everyone, and welcome to Serenity on Steroids with me, Bianca Joy. I was so happy to hear your feedback about my uh, first intro episode. You guys are digging it, you care what I have to say, and also you guys thought my voice was soothing. And it was surprising to hear because that was honestly one of the first humps that I had to get over when I was thinking of starting this podcast, was just getting over how my voice sounded. You know, I'd um, record, I'd record myself, hear the played back, and I'd be like, oh God, how can I do this? How do other people do this? YouTubers, podcasters, how, how did they get over that hump of hearing their own voice? Anyway, it made me realize how hard on ourselves we are and how we are our own worst critic. Like to us, we may cringe when we hear our voice, but to others who care what we have to say, our voice may be the sweetest sound that they hear. And I wrote this quote when I was doing this podcast write-up and I posted it to my Instagram and it said, the flaws that we perceive to possess are what others may look at with fondness. So the flaw that I perceived being the sound of my voice was what really resonated with people, literally and figuratively. And that was one hurdle I had to get over, but I did. Another being I had to get the equipment, understand how it all worked, and just all the logistics of setting up and submitting a podcast. And it can be overwhelming because it's such a new thing. It was completely foreign to me. And people may stop there and not want to invest the time in learning something new, even if it was part of their goals, even if it was part of their, part of their dreams. But I realize when doing this, it's that you really, really have to work at what you want. You can't dilly-dally. Things aren't going to happen unless you make them happen. There is that saying that goes, to get something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. So I, I recorded that episode and sat on it for weeks. I had mentioned it to a friend because she also has a podcast. And she came to me a few days later and asked me where she could listen to it. And I kind of brushed her off nervously. And I was like, oh, I'm going to re-record it. I'm not too sure yet that I want to share it. Just giving her excuses in the runaround because I was scared to to share it with her. But then I got some courage and texted it to her and I just said, you're the first one I'm sharing this with. And she liked it and was excited to hear more. So after that, the courage in me started to overtake the fear that I had. And the day that I posted, I was still so hesitant. And my husband turned to me. He was like, Bianca, why are you so scared? My Initial response to him was right off the bat. I was afraid that people would make fun of me. You know, um, putting yourself out there is hard. It's scary. And I'm a pretty private person. And just recently I came back onto social media. And so putting myself out there to possibly being ridiculed, being judged, it kind of scares you out of doing something. And I thought some more and I told him, 
I'm also scared because once I post this, then I'm committed to it. I can't back out. I can't fail now. By the way, failure isn't people criticizing your work. Failure isn't having 10 listeners or 10 followers. Failure is failing to follow through with your dreams. And how sad is it if we never do the things that truly make us happy? But anyway, before this podcast idea was just on the back burner, more of an afterthought, and I was actually not really believing that I was going to go through with it. But then I'm like, oh boy, I'm really committing to this. I'm really going to venture on this path and see where it takes me. I'm really going to put in the work and devote myself to it. And in the past, I failed to follow through in so many ways. I would get a job and quit before I even started. I got my real estate uh, sales license back when I was 18. Didn't do anything with it. And matter of fact, I let my license expire. And I studied accounting at San Diego State. I was studying for the CPA after I graduated. I, I took one part of the exam and failed it and just closed that chapter of my life. In about 2012, I got my broker license, my real estate broker license, and haven't done much with that either. I mean, I had four kids after that, but I still had a history of not following through. And I didn't want that to occur again with this project meaning my blog and my podcast, because I actually really love doing this. So it's a bit scary if I don't follow through uh, because it's public and the implication if I fail is that much greater. So anyway, all those emotions of fear were rolling through my head before I had posted this. It was a whirlwind of emotions. But you realize that it's just that. It's just all in our head. And what's sad is we allow it to overtake us and keep us in the comfort zone. And nothing exciting or exhilarating is going to happen in the comfort zone. And I, I say that the comfort zone is where dreams go to die. So let's make an effort to conquer our fears. Questioning ourselves as to why we are so afraid. What are the excuses we tell ourselves to not start something? And maybe push through our fear to realize there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Again, I am so grateful for all the support and all the feedback I got from everyone. Also, it's super cool because I saw you guys rated me on the podcast app. So I see that also. Thank you. Also, I'm on Google Play and Spotify, so if that's your media player of choice, you can find me on there. So I've been super interested in psychology lately, especially that I've been going on this so-called self-growth journey. And I just think it's incredible that we humans are so interested in our own behavior that there are doctors and scientists that devote their lives to try and understand why we do the things that we do. And there are people who will try to heal others by knowing this information, like therapists. And I always told myself, I wish I studied psychology 
in university, but I guess I'm right now I'm studying it, albeit in a more casual way, but learning nonetheless. And I wish I knew at a young age how amazing it is to learn and more importantly, love learning. I think we get caught up in the memorization and the regurgitation that school demands of us. And we lost sight of how awesome it is to learn. I think learning in any capacity keeps us alive, keeps us young and full of curiosity. So never stop learning. Find something you love and learn all about it. All right, now to segue into today's topic, which is relationships and the way that we behave in relationships and the certain partners that we attract. Have you ever questioned yourself on why you behave a certain way in relationships? Have you ever questioned why you are possibly a little too clingy, eventually scaring partners away? Or on the other end, why you are possibly dismissive and aloof and not wanting to show emotions? And your partner wants more and more, which makes you turn away even more. And it ultimately spells the demise of your relationship. Or perhaps you have certain qualities of both. Our behavior in all interpersonal relationships, including romantic relationships and friendships, could be linked back to how we were treated as children by our caregivers, meaning our parents. And psychologists refer to this as attachment theory. And this theory was proposed by John Balby, I may be butchering his name, and later expanded on by Mary Ainsworth. And just to back up and lay some foundation, attachment is a human survival mechanism. It is in our innate desire to survive. And how do we go about surviving as an infant? Well, we cry. And crying brings to us our mother or our father, where we can be fed, held, or just comforted. So what Ainsworth did was have an experiment called Strange Situation. And this was back in the 70s. So I'm just going to brief you on this procedure and how it worked. She would document the behavior of these infants. They were about a year to a year and a half. And she sampled 100 American families. And each experiment lasted 20 minutes. So she would have the baby, the mother, and a stranger in a room. And there were about eight episodes of the stranger leaving, the mother leaving, mother returning, both in the room, none in the room, so on and so forth. And she would document the behavior of the child, such as the amount the child explored in the room, like playing toys, the reaction when the mother departed, and the the behavior when the baby was alone with the stranger, and the behavior when the child was reunited with the mother. And with this, she concluded that there were three attachment styles, with one more they added later. So a child with a secure attachment style was able to separate from the parent, seeks comfort from the parent when frightened, And when the parent returned to the room, the child had positive emotions. Basically, the caregivers are marked as being available, responsive, and helpful. So that is the secure attachment. 
And then we have the insecure attachments, which are anxious and avoidant. So the anxiously attached child was upset when the mother left, was uncomfortable with a stranger, and switches between clinging and angrily rejecting the mother upon return. So the caregivers are typically unpredictable with their care. They are inconsistent with their care. Sometimes they are attuned emotionally and they can respond effectively to a child's distress. And sometimes they are unavailable, just basically inconsistent. These children tend to become confused and insecure because they do not know what type of treatment that they will get from their parents. And they learn from an early age that the best way to get their needs met from their inconsistent caregiver is to be clingy and act desperate. Their way of surviving as a baby through their attachment style was to be clingy and demand attention from their caregiver. So that's the anxiously attached child. The other insecure attachment style is avoidant. The avoidantly attached child in the experiment didn't pay much attention to the caregiver while exploring the room. Child was unconcerned when the caregiver left, was comfortable with the stranger, and then uninterested when the caregiver returned. And the caregivers to these type of children are marked as unresponsive, uncaring, and dismissive. And these children learn early to suppress their desire to seek out a parent for comfort because they know that they will never get the attention or care for them. So the child's way of survival was to pretend that they had no needs. And this was to, be, to ensure being in close proximity to the caregiver without being pushed off. And lastly is the disorganized attachment. This is a combination of both avoidant and anxious attachment styles. And this is the result of severe childhood trauma, emotional neglect, or abuse. The child in this case does not know how to behave around their caregiver because, yes, the child wants to seek comfort from the parent, but is also in fear of the parent. So the emotion the child experienced was fear because the parents may have been abusive, physically violent, or depressed. Okay, so we have the four styles and we identified how the caregivers behaved, which results in the child's behavior and attachment style. By the way, if you're researching this on your own, you'll see these styles are referred to as different names, like anxious is referred to as preoccupied, avoidant is sometimes called dismissive, and disorganized is also called fearful avoidant. It tends to get confusing when you first read on this, but once you know the characteristics of the styles, you should be able to distinguish which is which, no matter what it's referred to as. Okay, so we got the attachment styles. What does that mean to us currently? As adults trying to date, trying to find a great partner, trying to have fulfilling and lasting relationships. What it means is the way that we attached to our caregivers in childhood is the way we attach to our loved ones in adulthood. 
And these styles carry over to our relationships as adults. So we have the securely attached adults. And these account for about 60% of the population. These people have trusting and lasting relationships. They have good self-esteem and think highly of themselves and of others. They are comfortable with closeness and emotional intimacy. And people wonder, where are all the good folks to date? And they are usually in relationships because they are just so good at them. And what's left in the dating pool are the anxious and the avoidance and the disorganized. But for now, I'm going to focus on the anxious and the avoidance. Because this combination is what we typically see as dysfunctional. Maybe we've been in a dysfunctional relationship. We see it in movies. We hear it in songs. This is the toxic combination. Or what people in it confuse it as passionate. So the anxiously attached adult, just like they were as a child has a fear of abandonment by loved ones and need constant reassurance from their partner. They usually have a negative view of themselves and a positive view of others. They are very dependent. They typically overthink the relationship and have intense anxieties during the relationship. And they need more intimacy than others. Now, if an anxious was with a secure in a relationship, the secure would ease their anxieties and reassure they are committed and committed to the relationship. But the anxious tend to view relationships with the secure as boring. And then the anxious is drawn to the emotionally unavailable avoidant. And just to recap, the avoidantly attached child in the strained situation experiment, didn't show distress when the parent left or returns, sometimes ignored the parent, and research showed that these children were often pushed away by their parents when seeking attention. So their survival technique was to make it seem like they have no needs. The child at such a young age decided it was pointless to communicate their needs because it had no effect on their caregiver. That was the child. Now, the avoidantly attached adult holds being independent as the end-all, be-all. They feel like they don't need anybody, and they can just take care of themselves. If you've ever been accused of being cold or aloof in relationships, or that you feel suffocated when someone is all over you, you probably have an avoidant attachment style. Okay, so... Why are the anxious and the avoidant, people with opposing views of intimacy, why are they drawn to each other? It's because we recreate the patterns that we learned in childhood. And I'm quoting this. uh, Daniel Siegel, a leader in interpersonal neurobiology, says... Our brains are actually wired to recreate conditions from our past. This means that our attachment and our defense mechanisms in childhood dictates how we believe we should behave now 
in order to get what we want, particularly in relationships. And I'm quoting Dr. Lisa Firestone on this. She says, so we seek out environments where those mechanisms are still appropriate. And without us even being aware, we are reaffirming old beliefs about ourselves, typically negative ones that were instilled in us in childhood. So we recreate what feels familiar to us. So the anxiously attached adult is living out their past with their fear of abandonment by going after someone who is emotionally unavailable. They actually feel safer being in a relationship filled with anxiety, always wondering if the person loves them and always need reassuring because it feels familiar to them. And the avoidant feels safe in this relationship because they have someone pursuing them without any effort on their part. But then, like in any relationship, issues will start to occur. The anxious is going to feel that the avoidant does not love them. She will crave more reassurance, more intimacy, or may even test her partner's love by trying to make them jealous. And the avoidance defense mechanism is going to go up and he will completely shut down and turn away to regain his space and independence. Maybe a reconciliation will occur and the cycle will begin again with the anxious feeling that the avoidant does not love. I am simplifying this, but if you've ever been in this type of relationship, maybe your eyes are beginning to open. I mean, from the outside looking in, people will wonder why you stay in a relationship with so many ups and downs. And it's because the highs are so good. And it feels like intense, passionate love compared to the lows. And for the avoidant, a simple reciprocation of love will have the anxious right back to fawning all over them without much effort. It's the perfect match. But is it really love? Is it true love? Is it true love where you have to cling to the other and be needy and be desperate to make sure the person stays and loves you? Or is it a relationship with true love where you're incapable of showing any emotion, thus always disappointing your partner? If you're anxiously attached, why are you drawn to someone who is emotionally unavailable? Why are you confusing the feelings of anxiety, nervousness, and obsessiveness if someone is into you as love? Is it because the inconsistencies in your partner's love feels familiar to the inconsistent care you may have got as a child? And if you're avoidantly attached, why do you shut down when someone wants more intimacy from you? Is it because you had to learn at an early age to suppress your emotional needs and wants and you will sabotage a relationship just so you don't have to address those needs? The bottom line is, if we have an, an insecure attachment style, 
like the anxious or the avoidant, we really didn't have a model of true love growing up. And if we didn't have that, then we don't know what true love looks like. All of our relationships will lack having that secure attachment, which isn't wrong. It's just that we lack the foundation and childhood experiences that could have shaped us to be more secure in relationships. So how do we go about getting that secure attachment style if we didn't grow up having one? The key is to get in a relationship with someone that has a secure attachment style. Research shows that our attachment style can change to be more secure if we get into a relationship with someone with that style. And if life hasn't brought us that person yet, then let us become more secure on our own. Let us become the partner that we hope to have. Therapy, journaling, and just taking the time to understand yourself, understand why you behave the way that you do, have that conversation with yourself. If we actually begin the introspection process, if we actually identify painful truths that we've held on to for so long, we can work through them. Because the truth is, we all want intimacy. We all want love. But it's incredibly difficult if we have a skewed idea of love. We need help remembering what true love feels like. I like referring to Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. All right, so I hope that was helpful to you. Um, It was definitely helpful to me to make sense of why I behaved the way that I did in past relationships or in friendships. And it's also helpful to me now as a parent to ensure that I give or hope to give a secure attachment style to my kids. So thank you for joining me and let's get that inner peace in us and in turn make the world a better place.